Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome again to Battle Walks, where we're walking across the great battlefields of Europe. Thank you to everyone who has joined us recently. We've had a, an influx of new listeners over recent weeks, and it's been really great to see. It's, it's really good to see that Pete and I aren't just strolling around the battlefields on our own. Uh, it's, uh, we do it because we love sharing these adventures with you, so thank you for joining us. And thank you to everyone who responds and gives us feedback through Twitter, through Facebook, through all the channels, because it's great to hear from you. And as always, keep sending in your suggestions for battlefields you'd like to see because we're always looking for good ideas. And the man with all the good ideas is my co-host joining me today. Pete, welcome back to the show. <laughs> I like that. All the good ideas. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, thank you. Yes, it's great to be uh, with you again. Well, it would be it would be false if uh, people didn't have the impression that most of the ideas we come up with for this show are your suggestions, Pete, being there on the battlefields. And I have to say your suggestion for last week, Operation Jericho, was absolutely inspired. It was a... If you haven't listened to that one, go out and, and, and listen to it because the, the raid on Army on Prison in 1944, uh, a, a bizarre chapter in many ways and um, just a really interesting one to cover from the ground. Yeah, and uh, I've got a few more up my sleeve yet. <laughs> Excellent. We had a really good response to that episode last week, Pete. A lot of people um, sent messages just saying how much they enjoyed it. And um, it, I mean, it is a good one, isn't it? It's it's an unusual one. I like these interesting little chapters of the Second World War that we can uncover. Sometimes we uncover little chapters of the First World War, but mostly the Second World War. But um, it was a good one to be able to walk around Armion and right in your neck of the woods. It is, and uh, that's what I like. When it's, it's close, I can go and have a, a quick shifty at it, uh, make sure nothing's changed as well. There's nothing worse than talking about something and it's actually changed. Um, so yeah, the prison is still there and uh, anybody passing that way can uh, can have a look. Well, if you haven't listened to that, go back and definitely listen to it because it was quite an exciting episode. I really enjoyed making it. And today we're going to return to the First World War. But before we do that, a couple of exciting housekeeping announcements. Firstly, this is the main one. 
the COVID situation in Australia seems unrelenting. Um, thank God we've done a good job of battling the virus, but what it's meant is we now are effectively closed off to the rest of the world like we have been for over a year. And that doesn't seem like it's going to change any time in the future. So sadly, if you're an Australian, we won't be walking the battlefields for quite a while. But I get the feeling that's not the same for our UK brothers and sisters. So if you are from the UK, an exciting announcement. Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours is coming back this summer in France. We are going to operate Battlefield Tours of the Western Front with Pete Smith this summer. As soon as they allow UK people to travel unrestricted to France, we will be back there operating tours of the Western Front, Normandy, pretty much all the destinations we talk about in this podcast. And I could, I cannot tell you how excited I am about it. Pete, you must be looking forward to it as well. I'm even more excited. <laughs> so it'll be absolutely fantastic to take people around the battlefields in real life. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm thrilled uh, and looking forward to it immensely. And I say as a listener, what a brilliant opportunity. I mean, you, you've heard Pete on this podcast, just his, his breadth of knowledge, his, his humanity, his, his ability to bring the history to life. But the chance to actually get out and walk the battlefields with him is, is just extraordinary. I've had the privilege of doing it several times and it's amazing. Um, and so I'm just really excited. We, we, you know, it's, it's watch this space because obviously there's a few things that have to be lined up. Um, but we will be launching those tours as well very soon with the expectation that as soon as the borders open up, as soon as you're allowed to travel unrestricted between the UK uh, and France we will be able to operate those tours of France. So it's very, very exciting. So it's going to be on our website, which will be battlewalks.co.uk because it'll be closely aligned with everything we're doing on the podcast. But just, it's really exciting. So if you're in the UK, and of course, if you're in Canada or North America or anywhere else that is allowed to travel to France, you're welcome to join us as well. But I think particularly our friends in the UK will be very excited about this, that hopefully hopefully within a month or so, we will be back touring on the battlefields. We're just so excited. So... Absolutely look out for that one and join us. Pete, you know, you'll be doing First World War Battlefields, Second World War Battlefields. Is there one you're most looking forward to getting back to with with, with passengers? Well, I think uh, up to Ypres and into Belgium, onto the salient. Uh, it seems such a long time. Well, it is such a long time. It's 18 months or more since I've been into Belgium and a, a place that I went weekly. So not to be able to go and cover the battlefields of the First World War in Belgium. Um, I mean, the battlefields here I can actually walk to and I can drive to. So I still visit those, but I haven't been over the border now for, for 18 months. So looking forward to, to getting back into Belgium. So we'll make an announcement when those tours are live, but uh, the, the website will be up very soon. You'll be able to see exactly what we'll be offering, but uh, it'll be under battlewalks.co.uk. And as I said, watch this space. It's very, very exciting. Uh, another housekeeping thing which is exciting is Apple has just introduced Apple subscriptions, which means if you listen on an Apple device, as the vast majority of our listeners do, you will be able to subscribe. And this is really exciting because there's there's always so much more we want to talk about that we don't get a chance to talk about in the podcast. Um, and so there'll be exclusive content available for subscribers. So for a small monthly fee, you will be able to join us and effectively get an extra episode a week. We will do a, a, an extra episode just for subscribers uh, on Battle Walks and also on our sister podcast, uh, Pete and Gary's Military History. We'll be doing it over there as well. So if you listen to any of the podcasts that we do, basically for a small fee every month, you will get a bonus episode of the of both podcasts. It's it's going to be really exciting. We're really looking forward to it. So uh, So again... Look out for that on Apple Podcasts. You'll see that button pretty soon saying that you can subscribe and get some bonus content. It'll also be completely ad-free. We'll do some special events just for subscribers. I'm really looking forward to it. Because, Pete, we always, we as much talking as we do, there's always something more to say. It's going to be great when we get to, a chance to, uh, to do some bonus episodes just for those subscribers. I can go off on one of my tangents and I can stick on it, which is great. 
we could call it Pete's Tangents. It could just be a whole episode <laughs> of Tangents. We could see how far away from the starting point we can get. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's, it is going to be lighthearted. It's going to be fairly relaxed. It's going to be a good one-on-one chance to just hear a little bit more about, about what we enjoy doing on the battlefields. Uh, and yeah, just to, I mean, if you if you have ever felt the need to sit next to Pete and I in a pub over a beer and just hear what we waffle on about, this is probably a good opportunity. It's going to be really great. So we're very excited about the extra content we can bring with, uh, with, with subscriptions. So look out for that one as well. Well, Pete, shall we get on with what we're doing this week? Because it's a pretty exciting one. We're heading back to Gallipoli. You know, I think, a, especially for Australians and New Zealanders, just iconic. For, for British people as well. And I'm glad to see Gallipoli is is getting some more prominence in the UK because it really deserves to. I think it's always been prominent, but it just gets it gets overlooked because, of, I suppose, of the interest. If you're interested in Gallipoli, then people people are interested and they want to go. But you're right. If you went to your average Joe public and said, uh, you know, "Do you know about the the Gallipoli landings?" and they may do. Uh, if you've got no interest in history, you probably wouldn't. If you've got no interest in history, you probably would know about the Battle of the Somme. So yes, I can see see what you mean that it has been kind of forgotten, but it's. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's a very important part of uh, of the campaigns of the First World War, and uh, and one that certainly, well, it's. I have to say, it's one of my favourite places to go. So it's a it's a joy to be doing this podcast, and and such a shame that uh, I haven't been since twenty sixteen. So I've not visited since twenty sixteen. When when was the last time you went, Matt? Well, that's a good question. I think I was there in I was there in twenty nineteen with Peter Hart just before yeah. um, the whole COVID. Oh yes, I was very jealous. I remember adventure occurred. <laughs> Yeah, actually, we did on Living History. We did Pete and I um, did this, a whole series of podcasts. Uh, this is Peter Hart, the other the other Pete in my life. Um, we did a whole series of podcasts live from Gallipoli, which was very exciting. It was in 2019, so yeah, that was the last time I was there. But gee, I walked every every inch of it. It's funny as we were talking about the national perspective on Gallipoli, Pete, because it's uh, there's a bit of an irony there that in perhaps in the UK it hasn't received the attention it's deserved especially for the UK contribution, 30,000 men killed or wounded at Gallipoli. No, 30,000 killed in extraordinary numbers. Um, and then it, it perhaps has been a little bit overlooked in the UK because of everything that was happening in France and Belgium. Uh, and it was the exact opposite in Australia and New Zealand, that Gallipoli dominated our consciousness so much that, that what we did on the Western Front got overlooked. And I'm happy to say that both of those have been redressed, that the, 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 the British seem to have discovered the importance of Gallipoli and the Aussies and New Zealanders have discovered that the whole story of the First World War is not just Gallipoli. I can feel another podcast coming on because there is a forgotten front uh, that uh, is t- is almost totally forgotten. That's Salonica. Um, in fact, most people don't even know exactly where Salonica uh, actually is. Uh, Salonica is the real forgotten front of the First World War, along with Italy, I suppose. Another another uh, front that, uh, that that Britain was fighting on. So uh, Salonica and Italy, I can feel two two podcasts coming on there. I agree, and and many, of course, on the British sector of Gallipoli, because there's so much to explore. As as we've said before, when we did Gallipoli very early on, I think it was maybe our second episode we did, maybe our first episode, but um, that was the last time we touched on Gallipoli, 25-odd episodes ago, uh, and we said it then that the, the the joy of visiting Gallipoli is it's 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 virtually unchanged. It, it, because it's rough country, because the terrain was such an obstacle, so much of it, particularly in the Anzac sector, is just unchanged. You can you can if you can read an account of we walked up McLagan's Ridge and you can walk up that ridge yourself. You then look down over Monash Gully. You, you can walk down to Shrapnel Gully. You can walk climb up the slopes up to uh, up to Quinn's Post or up to the Neck. It's just extraordinary that there are all these iconic places are still there. They're still obvious, and you can walk between them. Just an incredible place. You you can't say too much about how wonderful it is 
to walk the ground at Gallipoli, especially as we're doing now, because we are out walking the ground, and that's what you should do when you go to Gallipoli. Don't do it. The, the majority of tourists just do it on a bus or in a car. Get out and walk the ground. It's absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely essential. It's it is the most wonderful battlefield to walk because it is unchanged in the main. There are some big exclusions to that, but in the main, it is it is unchanged. And I can't think of another battlefield, or certainly the ones that I've visited in in Europe, that are unchanged. That they're, they're not they're completely changed. I mean, here we have ploughed fields, and I'm describing actions in ploughed fields that that are back under the plough, uh, and uh, Gallipoli, the Gallipoli Peninsula, just just extraordinary. I remember the first time we went there together, Pete, in about 2013 and walking around Hill 60, which is a site that is an interesting part of the story, but doesn't often resonate with people compared to some of the other places. But for whatever reason, it was just, it was a perfect day. We were walking around. I think we were even there on the anniversary of the battle, but we were walking around. And as we strolled around, I remember I looked down and found a, a, a rounded 303 bullet, the, the, the type they used in at Gallipoli, that rather than the pointy 303 projectile, it was the, the rounded nose. And so I bent down and picked that up. And then under a little tree, there were three little fragments of a, of a Turkish cricket ball grenade or three perfectly formed little iron fragments. And the Turks have called called it, uh, of course, called Hill 60 um, Bomb Assert, which is, uh, which is Bomb Hill because of the amount of hand grenades that were thrown around there. And to find fragments of a Turkish cricket ball bomb at, uh, at Hill 60 was just extraordinary. So we could go on and on about the magic of the place. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, I probably spoilt it a little bit because I left my glasses there. They fell off my head at some stage. So somebody's probably found my glasses now uh, <laughs> on that very day. <laughs> a relic a relic of the yeah. fighting. It's changed the, uh, changed the outlook on uh, what was going on in yeah. 1915. But today we're, um, we're going to do something in the Australian-New Zealand sector. We're going to do, for Australians and New Zealanders, the most iconic part of the battlefield. That's the landing beaches, the story of the landing, obviously the the, the essential part in most people's minds. An interesting one for me because I think it gets a little bit too much attention. Um, our understanding of the landing, I think, focuses too much. Um, it's why uh, last year I did that book with Peter Hart on the Gallipoli evacuation because I thought that was just as a compelling part of the story as the landing. Um, but the landing gets a lot of attention. And the landing area is is about so much more than Anzac Cove. So that's what we're going to do today, a walk along the whole stretch of beaches that that uh, that, that cover the landings. And we're going to tell the story of the landings. Well, I'm not going to go into too much detail. I think everyone knows the stories of the landings, but we'll touch on a couple of a couple of the features. But the first thing to note about the landings was it was unopposed, effectively unopposed, that there was only one half company of Turks overlooking the beaches where the Anzacs came ashore. So in the opening hour or so of the landing, when the Australians landed, the New Zealanders came in a, in a, a second wave. But in the first the first wave that landed of Australians, they put ashore about four thousand troops in the first hour or so. And opposing them were less than 150 Turkish troops. So that's the first thing to understand. They had no machine guns. They only had rifles. And they did not stick around. Because if you were one of 150 blokes and you saw 4,000 people landing from boats, you would get out of there pretty quickly, which is exactly what the Turks did. So they did fire some shots. They did kill some Australians, but absolutely not many at all. The, the one thing to remember about the Gallipoli landing is the killing and the dying occurred later in the day on the 25th of April. Thousands of people died on the opening day of the Gallipoli campaign. But it mostly occurred later in the day as the fighting stretched to the ridges and gullies overlooking the landing beaches, not on the beaches themselves. It's an interesting one, isn't it, Pete? Because even artists of the time, during the war, when people painted, artists painted, you know, portraits of the landing at Gallipoli, the number of times you see explosions, it looks like something out of Saving Private Ryan. Firstly, broad daylight. Secondly, machine guns blasting away, artillery carving up the beach. 
And it wasn't like that at all. It was in complete darkness and uh, it was virtually unopposed. I think this is the the big confusion, is people get con, uh, confused with the landings that took place later on in the day uh, compared to the initial landings. And it's very much often the case that the first waves go in unopposed because people are either a, not ready or not sure where people are going to land. So very often, the, the first even the first guys over the top on the Western Front very often do better than the second and third waves because there's always an element of not sure what's going to happen. Um, and so we get get this confusion in people's minds, especially because it's been, I suppose, over the years, it's become such an important part of Australian culture that that those landings on Anzac Day, as it will become known, and and so people think that the first landings were where it was, uh, you know, really terrible, getting out of the boat, getting hit, falling in the water, machine guns opening up, and of course the machine guns are a massive issue in their own right. We know there are no machine guns there. You know, we now. For certain, no, that uh, there were no machine guns on the initial uh, landing. So it's 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 a story that has become exaggerated. And we can see, I mean, I was a serviceman and you have this terrible kind of need to make your service kind of feel like it should have been more exciting. Now, I didn't ever see any combat, but if I had done, then would I would I tend to exaggerate it? Well, I think there's a big... You, know, you can't help yourself, uh, really, to a certain extent. And men over the years tell a story that gets exaggerated. It then gets written down, and they think, "Oh, I can't tell the the, the correct story now because now this is in uh, in print." So I think there's there's all of that. There's also the need for Australia. This is the you know the coming of age of Australia. It, it means so much nowadays that you know we need to make it a little bit more exciting. Well, you don't need to. The whole the whole story is is massively exciting without exaggerating anything. Uh, but uh, we do. We have a little bit of an exaggeration uh, on the actual, uh, the opposition to the original landings. I think um, the other thing we should talk about is the the landing in the wrong place story, which we all get into as we explore this area. I should also say that the, the walk we're going to do is based on my book, uh, Gallipoli, The Battlefield Guide. Pete and I each have a copy of that in front of us, and, and that's the tour we're basing this on. So if you have a copy of that book, uh, grab it out and you can walk uh, walk in the footsteps with us. Um, because there is a, quite a lot to see in the Landing Beaches area, and it's a, it's a story much bigger than just Anzac Cove. But this idea of the landing in the wrong place is true. The Anzacs did come ashore in an area they were not supposed to. But a couple of things about it. It wasn't that they land on the wrong beach. The, the Australians were always intended, some Australians were always intended to come ashore at Anzac Cove. It's just that the, the problem was that they all bunched up and they all landed on Anzac Cove together. Uh, in reality, they were supposed to land on a, a front which was about a mile long, so about a kilometre and a half. And there's there's three main beaches. There's Brighton Beach, what would be called by the Anzacs Brighton Beach, Anzac Cove, and then North Beach to the north. And the plan was that they were going to come ashore on a wide one-mile front across all of those beaches and push inland. Um, what actually happened was there was no mysterious current. There was no Turks moving marker buoys, none of this stuff. Basically, all that happened is as they came ashore in the dark, the, the, the Navy men driving them in got a little bit confused with the geography because it hadn't been actually accurately charted. They hadn't had much of a chance to, to reconnoiter. As they came ashore, they got a few of their landmarks confused. And some of the men in the south that were supposed to be heading towards Brighton Beach got a couple of the landmarks confused and started turning a little bit north. And of course, if you imagine a whole line of boats side by side, if the boat on your right starts swinging towards you effectively as the ones in the south started turning north you're going to start swinging north as well you're going to turn a little bit left to avoid a collision and so basically what you have is a, a large number of boats that all started to just start to swing north a little bit and because of the, the layout of the geography then they found themselves all getting bunched up between two massive headlands and they all came ashore at Anzac Cove 
So I think the other thing to say is that the plan was never very specific about where they would come ashore. The plan simply said they will land on a mile front between Brighton Beach and Arrow which is the northern end of, of Anzac Cove. So it was pretty vague to begin with. I think the important thing was that they, they just needed to get ashore. And the problem was that uh, the big problem was the confusion of the landing, that all the battalions got mixed up. You know, a battalion might have been spread across 30 boats by the time you had all the men in a battalion uh, coming ashore. They you know, spread out between dozens and dozens of boats. Those boats all got very confused and the men came ashore without their officers. They came ashore without other men from their battalions. And by the time it was all sorted out, that element of surprise had been lost. So does that sit with a fair summation in your mind, Pete, of the confusion of the landing? Yeah, it, it does indeed. And uh, you know, it's odd uh, where they landed was actually probably the safest bit on the whole the whole section of that coastline because these, these two little little jutting out uh, uh, spears of land, Ari Benu and Hellspit, at each side of Anzac Cove, they gave that shelter so, so you didn't get enfilade fire. There was no fire coming in from the sides. Uh, in the main, uh, some a couple of exceptions, but uh, for the initial landings, no fire really coming in from the side. So, so in a in a way, yes, they're not in the right spot, but they are in the right spot. It's just that they're all in the right in the in the the right spots. Everybody's all crammed in together. And as Matt quite rightly said, I think the big the biggest issue is the confusion of trying to get your battalion together, of trying to find your command, trying to find uh, where your guns are and uh, your your machine guns. So that was the biggest issue, was that you, you know they were tasked to go straight up the bluffs, to head straight up uh, to the high ground, and very difficult when you're not quite sure who you're with. Who is the guy beside me? Is he in my battalion? I have no idea who he is. In fact, I have no idea where I'm going. All I've been ordered is I need to go up. I need to collapse to, to start climbing. And I have to say now, for those of you that haven't been, you you have got to go. It is absolutely stunning. I When I went in 2013 was the first time that I actually had visited uh, the site. And I remember standing at the uh, on the beach and, and looking up and just thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to read everything again because it's just so steep. And it, and even though I'd seen photographs and maps and and plans, and you know, I, I knew it backwards and forwards before I got there, but standing on that beach and looking up, it's just extraordinary how steep the landscape is uh, and how uh, how difficult it was going to be to 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 fight in the dark. Because remember, this is dark. This is four thirty in the morning. So so many issues going on at the same time. Uh, and uh, and you have to say it, it is no surprise that it that it starts to fall to bits. The other thing that is important, I think, to to realise is that most of the men that that were fighting on the beach had very limited information about what was going on. There wasn't, as there will be later on in the Great War, where there's going to be an individual infantryman will be briefed very well before he goes into action in 1918. He knows exactly who's in front of him, who's to the left, who's to the right, what he's supposed to do, the landmarks. They've built models for him to look at. The briefing here for Joe Bloggs, the infantryman, was uh, non-existent, you have to say. We should also, a couple of important points to mention is that the Allies didn't just, you know, come ashore... And bungle about, they uh, they had to face a determined enemy. And we, the one thing we tend to always overlook from our Western perspective is the, the brilliant job the Turks did defending their homeland, as you can imagine. And the Turkish defence was exceptional uh, at Gallipoli. Throughout the campaign, they fought at a standard that was much higher than anything that the uh, sort of arrogant allies expected them to. Uh, and so it wasn't the case that we just bumbled our way through the Gallipoli campaign. We were defeated by a determined enemy. And so we should note the, the, the job the Turks did, particularly on the first day, stopping the um, the waves from getting inland was essential to uh, to what happened uh, for the rest of the campaign. It's um, it's just quite an extraordinary uh, extraordinary place. And uh, we should never forget the job that the Turks did in, uh, in the defence. 
Should we begin walking? It's a, it's a really interesting place. We're not going to start at Anzac Cove. We're going to start a little bit further north uh, at a place called North Beach. And it'll be worth getting a map out just to see where the Anzacs came ashore because we're going to, we're going to start at North Beach. Um, the most prominent thing at North Beach now is the Anzac Commemorative Site. So we'll, we'll start there because the there's the geographic feature known as the Sphinx, which is still there. This sort of jutting out. Um, I think uh, Les Carline called it an erosion in progress. It's this jutting out uh, crop of land which towers over North Beach and looked uh, inescapably like the Sphinx back in Egypt where they'd been uh, where they'd been training. And now today in the shadow of the Sphinx is the purpose-built Anzac commemorative site to accommodate the thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of tourists that come for Anzac Day every year. And I want to talk a little bit about Anzac Day because my advice to you would be Anzac Day at Gallipoli is obviously iconic, particularly if you're an Australian or a New Zealander. And so absolutely go if being there for that service is important to you. It's a gruelling adventure. You have to be up all night and walk many, many, many kilometres in the freezing cold and in the boiling heat. It's actually quite gruelling. I'm looking forward to never doing it ever again, having done it several times. But um, I feel I've done it now. And I think once is definitely enough. Um, But what I would say to people is definitely go twice to Gallipoli if you can, because Anzac Day is an amazing national event, but it's also very, very crowded. Uh, When when there's 10 or 20,000 other people there, you do not get the experience of Gallipoli, which so many of us know, which is the solitude. So if you can, if you are fortunate... Go to Gallipoli twice, or or at least go to Gallipoli for Anzac Day and then stay longer so that you have more time to explore because it does tend to thin out very quickly after Anzac Day and yeah, you hopefully get the place to yourself. Because, Pete, I, I've got to say, standing on these ridges and walking through these gullies where thousands and thousands of men tramped during the campaign and then having the whole place to yourself is really quite an extraordinary experience. It is indeed, and I think you have to choose the time of year that you're going to go. And, and oddly, Anzac Day is uh, is a great time to go because you've got it can be quite warm uh, during the, the day. It gets a bit chilly in the evenings, but the weather is perfect for exploring and, and wandering about. Whether later on in the year it can get very very hot, and you need to make sure you've got buckets of water with you, uh, even though you can go for a dip in in the uh, in the sea. Uh, to cool yourself down if you're close to the coastline, but it's uh, it can be very hot, and in the winter, of course, it's very cold, as we know from uh, uh, Peter Hart's podcast and and the book about the evacuation. Very very cold uh, in the winter, so uh, I uh, yeah I, around about Anzac Day, best time to go. But I would I would go pre or post, have a really good look round and do that walking and exploring and enjoying the battlefield, and then go go somewhere else in Turkey, go and explore uh, one of the other historic sites. There are a lot an awful lot, so I go to Istanbul and then then come back again and uh, for the uh, the actual uh, Anzac day uh, because uh, yeah Matt, Matt's right trying to combine the two in a very short period in a couple of days then you do get it's very quite difficult to to visit all of the sites when there's all of the road blockages and things you get uh, uh, around uh, uh, services that take place on, on Anzac Day because of course the Turks also commemorate Anzac Day as well so there's a, a lot of things going on so definitely two trips or a trip that's uh, two visits within one trip Another point that I should have mentioned about the landing when we first started talking about it, that's something that will reflect why this was such a such a confused muddle. Uh, the example I always give when you stand on these beaches and talk about the, the Gallipoli landing is that uh, D-Day. So Gallip- Gallipoli was the largest amphibious landing up up until that time, and it remained the case until the Second World War. So it's it's some it, it forms some useful comparisons. And, and and General Patton, for example, who played such a large role in D-Day in the Second World War was an avid student of what went on at Gallipoli, and he, he, he learned a lot of lessons about the disaster that was Gallipoli. But if we look at D-Day, it took more than two years to plan 
the D-Day landings of 1944, the Gallipoli campaign was planned in three weeks. It was three weeks between the time that the, the Navy was defeated and they decided they needed a, a landing uh, at, uh, at Gallipoli. So it, they, they literally spent three weeks planning where they were going to come ashore and exactly how they were going to do it. And I think, Pete, you know, given your military experience, given everything we know about history, an operation this large was never going to be effective with only three weeks of planning. Oh, it's just extraordinary, especially when you know a little about uh, the the pre-planning for the, the for Normandy in 1944, where they're taking you know, samples. They sent frogmen ashore to take samples of the beach, uh, the material on the beach, whether it was gravelly or whether it was soft sand or hard packed sand, that kind of information. They're gathering, gathering, they're gathering it in. They also wanted photographs of the beaches for people that were on holiday uh, pre the, the Second World War so they could kind of get up-to-date comparisons and views of high tide and low tide. So just an unbelievably detailed planning. And here we have, well, very little planning. No idea of, I'm sure most of the guys would probably, you know, were told they had to scramble inland and it's going to be a bit of a steep hill. But like myself, for the first time I'm on that beach and looking up, you know, that is a little bit more than a steep hill. Uh, and you know, it's, it's you literally can't climb it in in very many areas. So I, I think, uh, yeah, it's it's just extraordinary. The other thing I should say, if you'd rode ashore on D Day in 1944, you'd have had a problem as well because what we we didn't mention is these boats are not powering up the beach and dropping the ramp on outcome the soldiers. These are literally being being drawn in by lighters, three little little boats, uh, steam powered, bringing it up close to as close as they can, letting them free. And then the guys are having to row in, you know, the last couple of hundred meters or more in some cases. So again, you know, did they have lots and lots of practice at rowing before this took place? No, they didn't. And when you've got one of these lifeboats effectively having to row them in, difficult. There must, there must have been blokes going all over the place. But uh, so, yeah, so a, a difficult day. And thank, thankfully, the initial the the initial landing was not under under fire because it would have gone horribly wrong right the way from the start if they had have been. All of the planning of the Gallipoli campaign just reeks of hubris, doesn't it, on the parts of on the part of the Allies. The number one mistake they made was assuming that the Turks would not defend the ground very well. So everything about it was it doesn't matter where we come ashore, Johnny Turk is not going to get in our way. It doesn't you know we we you know the mighty the might of the British Empire will will cast them aside pretty quickly. And the worst thing that actually happened to the Allies was one of their early successes. In November 1914, they bombarded some Turkish forts. They got very lucky and hit a um, hit the magazine in one of the Turkish forts and blew it up entirely and killed hundreds of Turks. And, you know, the whole, the whole fort was aflame. And then they sent a raiding party ashore. And because the Turks were all dazed from the explosions, the raid was very successful. This was actually the worst thing that could happen to the Allies because it, they, it meant from that moment they completely underestimated the ability of the Turks to defend their homeland. And uh, and I think that led to um, to the debacle that became the Gallipoli landing. Oh, and we have to remember as well, of course, the Germans were very much involved in training the Turkish army before uh, the, the First World War. So you know, these guys uh, have had good military training as well. Not all of them, but in general, the, the officers are well trained. They they know their tactics, and so so yeah, this is not a, a, a rabble that they're they're facing at all. Isn't this the thing about Gallipoli, Pete? I mean, we, you know, we've only just barely started talking about the walk that we're going to be doing, but already there's just so many layers of history, and 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 that's the thing that with Gallipoli, there's always another, there's always another angle, there's always another argument, there's always someone saying, well, if only we'd done this, if only we'd done that. Peter Hart calls it the "if only" campaign. If only we'd done this. If only the ships got through. If only we'd landed in a different spot. If only we'd put more troops into the onto that beach instead of that one. 
it could have all gone differently. It's it's there's so many if onlys to do with the Gallipoli campaign, and I think you can see that just from the amount of discussion Pete and I are even having here just about the fundamentals of the landing. But um, let's uh, let's let's actually walk the beaches. So as I said, we're at North Beach. We're under the the shadow of the Sphinx. It's an iconic spot to stand. It's where the Anzac Day service is held every day. Anzac Day used to be held at Ari Bernou Cemetery, the one of the prominent cemeteries at Anzac Cove, uh, up until um, up until the late nineties. Um, but it's a very small cemetery, and um, literally thousands and thousands of people were coming. It was in the nineties that Anzac Day really took off. The commemoration of it back in Australia, but also this idea that you should go to a foreign battlefield, which, when you think about it, is quite a, an interesting concept. It doesn't naturally fit. You know, Americans, for example, are not going to Normandy in, in in their hundreds of thousands to pay their respects, or to Iwo Jima, or to any of the great American battlefields. They're very happy to do it from the monuments back in America. You know, most countries are the same. The concept that you need to go to the battlefields and walk the ground and be there for these huge commemorative events is quite a recent. Um, it's quite a recent thought. Um, I'm very glad that Australians in particular do it um, because it means that uh, that we get thousands of people committing to, to walk the battlefields. Um, but at places like Gallipoli, it did, get, it did put a lot of pressure on the landscape, which is why in 2000 they opened the, the uh, Anzac commemorative site, a purpose-built area on North Beach to, to commemorate Anzac Day. So it's actually a bit confusing to people that they think they will be commemorating Anzac Day in Anzac Cove but actually don't. They commemorate Anzac Day just around the corner at the uh, at the commemorative site. I think I'll just add something here, Matt, because it is, it is very, very interesting. Of course, it almost be, became, and still is, I suppose, to a certain extent, a rite of passage for young Australians. You know, young Australians, you know, they, they know about it. And there's no, I can't think of another country that has this equivalent, almost a rite of passage that you need to go. If you can afford it, and when you're touring Europe and as a backpacker, you know, touring Europe, then you go to a battlefield. As part of your rite of passage, almost, you go to a battlefield and you commemorate what, what took place now over a, over a hundred years ago. And I think that, I think that's extraordinary, but it's also extraordinary that this, these are young people. Because certainly we don't get that here. We get students, school students, coming to the, the battlefields of the Somme. But you wouldn't get backpackers here exploring the battlefields. So I think there's, you know, there's this rite of package, uh, pa- passage. But there's also a, a, one of the other interesting things, I suspect, is because the accommodation's cheap. The accommodation is quite cheap in, in Turkey and uh, in the area. You can, you can get, get a, you know, you can hire a small room or you can camp or you, know, you can literally crash out. So there's lots of, uh, of ways that you can see it very cheaply. And I think that's what also helps the fact that, that backpackers and young people uh, we're going on a regular basis and still do to well not at the moment but uh, uh, go to uh, to the Gallipoli battlefields and especially to to Anzac Day. Um, so yeah, so it, it's it's very odd. And I think most Australians don't really realise it's odd because they just see it as something that that is that is done. But I can't think of another country that that has that kind of almost rite of passage. I should say it's a wonderful thing too that that young people on Anzac Day have over the years gotten a bit of a bagging from the people back home. And I want to come on the record right now as saying I have never seen a young person at Gallipoli do anything disrespectful or anything wrong. Yes, they tend to lie around a bit because they're sleepy because they've been up all night. Um, but I can relate I, to that. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen young people um, wiping the dirt off headstones, you know, t- tenderly. That was that's the word. I saw a young girl who was probably nineteen kneel down at a headstone and I think a lawnmower had come through earlier in the in the day and put some dust up on the headstone and she lay down and she tenderly with her bare hand wiped the dust off the headstone so that the name of the soldier could be revealed. So I've seen young people 
be nothing but respectful. And I have a huge amount of time for the young people that go to Gallipoli for Anzac Day. So if you're listening to this, if you're sitting home in Australia and you've never been to Anzac Day at Gallipoli, don't fall into that trap of thinking the young people are being disrespectful because it's the opposite. They're paying thousands of dollars and coming from the far side of the world to go and remember these men. So it's it's a wonderful thing we should all be very proud of. Uh, and you'll see them there in their thousands on Anzac Day. The interesting thing about North Beach is that um, even though it's where we commemorate Anzac Day, obviously the focus is Anzac Cove, but North Beach was much busier during the campaign than Anzac Cove. Anzac Cove was tiny, it was cramped, and after the opening days, as the front line pushed a little bit further inland and North Beach became a bit safer... North Beach became the prominent uh, base on the on the in the Anzac sector because it was just big, it was large. They could build dugouts and hospitals and and, um, and storage dumps and everything they needed to to have an army because that's what we could remember. Trying to you know an army came ashore at Gallipoli. The beachhead was tiny. The entire battlefield was tiny. They never they never really the whole the whole time it was really just a beachhead they established. Unlike Normandy where they pushed inland very quickly. Uh, at Gallipoli, they never really left the beaches. And so imagine trying to cram an army into the tiny space of Anzac Cove. It's why they needed space like like North Beach. The other thing I was going to say is that unlike at Anzac Cove, when the soldiers came ashore at North Beach during the landing, some some soldiers did land at North Beach on the day of the landing um, and the Turks were ready for them and it was daylight. And so when we talk about heavy casualties, uh, th- those occurred at North Beach, not at, at Anzac Cove. And I've got a quote here from the official history which just describes what the men who came, who the unfortunate men who came ashore at, uh, at North Beach faced. So before the boats left the destroyers, bullets were rattling against the high bows of the warships. The rowing boats were under heavy fire all the way to the shore. And as the foremost of them reached the land, the first Turkish shells came singing over. Bullet after bullet went home among the men in the crowded boats. In one, six were hit before reaching the shore and two more as they clambered from the boat. So if you think about that, eight men hit in one boat, there's probably only 20 men in a boat. So if you think that eight men have been hit by by bullets before you've even left the boat, that's a, that's a pretty high percentage of the, of the blokes in the, in your little boat. So a lot of men were killed as they came ashore at, at North Beach. That was quite a quite a horrific part of the landing. So this is where we get that, that double story, isn't it? We get the, you know, we talk about the initial landings and that's what everybody kind of concentrates on. But this is where we get the real horror of the men trying to get out of boats, struggling in, in now full daylight and trying to get uh, up a, a much up, more open beach. And, and it would have been terrible. It would have been a disaster if everybody had actually ended up on, uh, on this beach, on North Beach. Um, but uh, uh, luckily, it becomes safe after the August when we get the landings at uh, Suvla Bay, which is a little bit further around the peninsula, and they, uh, they push the Turks back a bit, which at last means that uh, we can get this this absolute hive of activity. As Matt said, just just extraordinary. Lots and lots of keys, wooden jetties being built out into the, into the sea using packing cases, etc. And yeah, so a very, very busy place. Uh, just extraordinary. You need to look at some photographs of what it was like to try and get an idea but even then they don't do it justice it, it would be like being in a football game almost you know not in the game in the in the crowd waiting to go in there's just there would have been so many people uh, on that beach people coming down to swim and relax people uh, bringing supplies up and down going up the gullies and up to, to danger but yet all the time the techs are just above you almost above you looking down on you so it was never totally safe 
but uh, certainly safer than the initial landings. One of the famous sites that we often uh, point out when we're on this beach is something called Fisherman's Hut, which is a little bit further uh, on North Beach, so so going further north. And um, Fisherman's Hut is where the firing came from. And again, we do get accounts of machine guns firing from here, but no machine guns here either. Uh, this was uh, just, just very accurate rifle fire, fire coming from uh, this place called Fisherman's Hut. Now, we need to know, I don't know if you know this, Matt, I, I may have mentioned it to you, but Fisherman's Hut just recently burnt down. So it's uh, it's it's no longer there, but I believe it's being rebuilt. So Because it's a very good point to point out. It is actually there. There is a Fisherman's Hut on the site still. So you can point it out quite uh, quite easily when you're talking about it. But it's, uh, it's certainly recently burnt down, but I believe they're rebuilding it. I didn't know that, Pete. That's interesting. As always, uh, it's it's a pretty rugged landscape there. There's always something going on like that at, at Gallipoli, unfortunately, but uh, it, it hasn't changed in over a century. You were mentioning how um, busy it was and just how much construction work had been done, as you said, after the landings at Suva Bay, when North Beach became relatively safe. And uh, again, another quote here from Sergeant Cyril Lawrence, who was evacuated sick. Um, he left before the August offensives and came back after the August offensives. So he got quite a surprise how much Gallipoli had changed and how busy it now was. And this is what he said. So he expected to land at Anzac Cove from where he had left, but instead he landed on a brand new pier at North Beach. And this is what he said. Once more on old Anzac, what a change. Why, when we left, there was hardly anything around this side of the cove. It was not safe. Now there are tents and a YMCA. And what's that great sandbag mansion going up directly in front of us? A post office, eh? 80 feet long, 12 feet high, and 24 feet wide. Some building. Windows, doors, and a counter, too. Crikey, they are coming on in these parts. So uh, you just see the... I mean, that's a big building. An 80-foot-long post office just to handle the mail coming in and out from uh, from Gallipoli. So just extraordinary and, not, and, and, and unexpected. And when you go there today, and obviously it's just a just a long stretch of sand, you, you can't imagine the um, just the, the, the hustle and bustle that went on in 1915. It, it, it's amazing, and... I always find it interesting that when you look down, if you walk, because people often wonder what the actual beach is like. Well, it's actually quite pebbly in some areas. So we get pebbles and a mixture of some sand. So it's it's one of those mixed beaches. Um, and uh, you still there's still the odd thing, you know, I have these these interesting relics. And you can walk on the beach looking down and there's bits of rum jar. It's probably the most common thing you can see. Little bits of the old SRD, the the, the jars that held the rum. You'll find those uh, being washed about in the in the surf. Um, so it's, uh, it's still there. This is the, and that's that's the great part of it. Uh, leave it there. We always leave everything uh, uh, there on the on the peninsula because it it needs to remain there. But it's a uh, yeah, it's an extraordinary uh, extraordinary place to to walk just along that this little bit a uh, bit of beach, knowing that so many people were once here in this uh, this same area. The other important thing about North Beach before we move on is this was where most men evacuated from. When we talk about the Gallipoli evacuation, the the the, the vast number of men left from North Beach because this was the main. The main thoroughfare, this was where the piers were, this is where boats could easily get in. Again, Anzac Cove was very cramped, but here they could get into piers, and, and so most men left from North Beach. So the last view that most men had of Gallipoli was chugging away in a little boat heading out from, from North Beach at the end of the campaign. And I just want to read another quote here. There's going to be a lot of quotes in this because it'd be, I, I, think, I think Gallipoli in particular, you need, to, you need to know about it in the words of the men that were there. So I think it really brings it to life. So... This is what Lieutenant Harry Moody had to say uh, when he was evacuated late in the campaign. The Turks have beaten us. Tonight's the last night at Anzac. It hurts to have to leave that place. I was undoubtedly sick of it and needed a rest, but to absolutely chuck the whole thing in cuts right in. And I'm damned if they can say the Australians failed to do what was asked of them. They did everything, more than they were asked. We feel it very much, believe me. 
we haven't had a fair chance. And that was uh, that was what Harry Moody had to say as uh, as he evacuated and looked back on uh, on 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 North Beach as he left. And sadly, um, he was then killed at Pozier in uh, August the following year. So as as many of these men felt that they'd already endured everything they could endure at Gallipoli, then went on to the horrors of the Western Front, and uh, and he was killed in August the following year. So uh, you know, only six months after having written that, he was uh, he was unfortunately lying in the fields of France. So, um, yeah, it's something we should remember. The, the, the ordeal was, in many ways, yet to come for the men as they uh, as they left the peninsula. I always uh, think about the men that uh, left their friends there, those that were dead, and in some cases, brothers. You know, so relatives, uh, best friends, guys you joined up with, uh, and uh, they'd been killed and buried uh, in one of the many cemeteries there, and they're having to leave them. Uh, and that feeling of not knowing what's going to happen to their graves when uh, when they've gone. Uh, and I think that must have troubled an awful lot of men that uh, that came off the peninsula. There's one moving account I read of a, of a son writing a letter to his mother and the line that, that captured me, I couldn't believe what I was reading. Dear mum, dad was killed today, was the opening line of the letter. So he was serving on the peninsula with his father and uh, and his father was then killed. Extraordinary. And imagine what that must have been like to, like to leave the grave of your father on, on, on Gallipoli and, and evacuate. So, um, yeah, so interesting spot, North Beach. It, it, gets, it gets quite overlooked uh, to Anzac Cove, but um, it's, it's a pretty important place. We're going to leave North Beach now. We're going to head south, and we're going to come to Araburnu Cemetery is the first thing we come to, which is the main cemetery. Uh, there's, two, there's one cemetery at the, each end of Anzac Cove. This is the one at the northern end. Araburnu is the name of the little hill, the little uh, headland that juts out at the north end of Anzac Cove, and as Pete said, Hell Spit is the one at the south. And so... This is Araburnu Cemetery, so it, it was the first cemetery established at Gallipoli when men were you know buried there on the morning of the landing after they'd been killed in and around the beach. Uh, and so this is the spot where men first came ashore. Uh, this is the spot where they were buried when they, when they fell on that opening day and indeed for the rest of the campaign. And um, so when you stand, it's worth when you go to Araburnu Cemetery, also walk down and stand on the beach in front of Araburnu because you are then standing right on the spot where the uh, where the first Australians came ashore on the morning of the landing. Really quite ex- an extraordinary place, Pete. Uh, I love Ari Bainu Cemetery. Well, I, I love the Anne Beach Cemetery. They're these two cemeteries that bracket uh, Anzac Cove, I think I think they're very special because they, they feel so immediate. You, you know that these are true battlefield cemeteries in the sense that, that they're burying people here almost from day one. Uh, and in some cases, right the way until, well, no, in both cases, almost to uh, the evacuation. So these are constantly being used. Now, they're not safe. And that's the other thing to say, that these cemeteries, in fact, very few cemeteries uh, are safe. These uh, these cemeteries are always in, in danger of random shell fire. What was that gun called? Beachy... Beachy Bill. Beachy Bill, yeah, um, one of the, the the of several guns that were firing onto the beach. So uh, yeah, so so burials that took place in these cemeteries were always difficult. But uh, I think uh, uh, Aribeno Cemetery a little a little safer than Beach Cemetery on the other side of the uh, of the cove. Well, George Mitchell was a lance corporal, and he came ashore in the first wave, and and his account of what it was like to actually land right where you're standing at uh, in front of Aribeno was um was quite remarkable. So I'll, I'll tell you how he uh, he described the landing. Uh, this was when uh, the first shots started ringing out because they came in in silence and they were incredibly nervous. There was a huge amount of tension. They didn't know whether the whole world was going to erupt in front of them. Finally, some rifle fire came from the Turks and they were actually quite relieved <laughs> that the battle had begun. So, was, so he said, good, I remember saying, the bastards will give us a go after all. Clock, 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 wee, 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 came the little messengers of death. Then it opened up in a terrific chorus. 
The key was being turned in the lock in the lid of hell. Some men crouched in the crowded boat. Some sat up nonchalantly. Some laughed and joked, while others cursed with ferocious delight. Fear was not at home. That was his description of the landing as he came ashore. It sounds a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, boy's own adventure, but um, that's how he recalled coming ashore at the landing. And um, and now, of course, when you stand at Araburnu, you stand on that beach. You've got this beautiful cemetery, and there's there's 252 burials in a cemetery. Um, because it was a hospital cemetery, because it was in the, it was it, bodies were brought back and typically buried in this cemetery. There's not many unidentified graves, and that's the distinction. In many of these cemeteries in Gallipoli, it's not quite like on the Western Front, where there's uh, there's a lot of unidentified graves. It's a little bit confusing. Some cemeteries are all unidentified graves, but many of them, like this one, there's not many unidentified. So 42 unidentified out of the 252 burials. So there's 149 Australian men buried there. And 82 of those men are from the Light Horse, which is interesting because a lot of the men killed in the charge of the neck in August, the famous charge at the neck depicted in the movie Gallipoli, if uh, if these men were wounded, they were brought back down to the beach uh, and many of them sadly died there. So there's a lot of men from the Light Horse who were killed in the charge of the neck or who died of wounds uh, after that charge are buried there. So just a, a lovely a lovely cemetery, Pete. Oh, I love them because they're, they're sheltered as well on a hot day and you can get under the trees. There's trees in these cemeteries and, and they feel nice. Now, what we should say, and we haven't mentioned these, of course, these are not the headstones that we've talked about on the Western Front. So you're, if you have ever been to the Western Front and you're thinking of the headstones and these, these white uh, Jurassic uh, stone headstones, well, that's not uh, what we have on Gallipoli. It was, it was, it was felt that they were a bit too, I suppose almost Christian, and because we're in a, a Muslim country, it was decided that there would be no cross of sacrifice in the sense of what we see here in uh, in, in France or in Europe. Uh, the cross would be just on a uh, engraved into a wall, so it's a cross that's actually engraved in, into one of the walls. And the headstones are not headstones; they're just um, how would you describe them, Matt? They're just uh, markers. We say markers, we say markers. That's a good word. Yeah. yeah, they're just yeah. it's just a it's a, a small square stone set. Uh, not into the ground. They're not flat in the ground. They're they're, they're propped up slightly. Just like the um, angle. Yeah, we, we just call them, yeah. yeah, just a slight angle. So we we, we call them markers. They're, they're what you might see in um in the in the civilian cemetery in West Wyalong, my hometown. You know, in the in the lawn cemetery, they're like that. They're like the, they're like the the small markers you'd see in a lawn cemetery uh, in a in a in a civilian cemetery back in Australia. So they, they, I think they're well done. They they do have a little Christian cross on them, and um, all the information, the same information that you have generally on the uh, the ones on the Western Front, but just done a lot more discreetly. As a nod to the, uh, you know, the nature of the uh, of the country that they're in. If anything, it, it opens up the landscape a bit, doesn't it? Whereas, so you so you get, in fact, the plants and flowers because there are there are flowers, it's the same as we get uh, here in uh, on the Western Front, uh, and so they're very very beautiful. And without the the headstones, it means that you get a bit more of a vista of a of a garden. It feels a little bit more like a garden to me when we go into into the cemeteries on the peninsula. Yeah, it's a lovely spot. We should also mention too, when talking about the landing in Araburnu Cemetery, that there's a connection with where you are sitting right there, Pete, because uh, Lieutenant Duncan Chapman from Maryborough in Queensland is considered the first man to have stepped out of the first boat. As much as we know, he was the first man ashore at Gallipoli, uh, and he was killed at Pozier. Again, another another sad tale: a man killed at Pozier, and he's buried at Pozier British Cemetery just down the road from where you are sitting at the moment, Pete. His body recovered in, uh, I was looking up before the podcast, I always uh, try and get my notes up to date. So recovered in uh, 1919. It's a grave that I take people to on the Western Front when we're, when we're touring here. Um, a lot of debate over the years as to whether uh, whether he was the first guy, but I think it's, uh, he's now fairly much been recognised as the first guy. And in fact, uh, his hometown uh, 
Hmm, how am I going to say that? Maryborough. <laughs> Thank you. Maryborough. <laughs> um, that's how it looks for, for a change. I normally get the pronunciation of Australian towns wrong. Uh, so Maryborough, um, yeah, has just recently, uh, well, fairly recently, raised uh, a, a memorial to him. So there's now a, a bronze statue uh, of him in his hometown. Uh, as, well. as far as we can, as far as we can tell, he was the first man ashore. Yeah. So we'll never know definitively, but he, he's representative of those first men ashore. So I'm not so sure it really matters, but it, it is interesting. Yeah, he definitely was in the first wave. He was an officer in the first boats to come ashore, so it's highly likely he would have led his men ashore. So he's a good representative. But yeah, it's a, it, there's a connection there always to the Western Front. So um, there's other notable graves, of course, in Arabunu Cemetery. My my Gallipoli relative. I have one relative who was killed at Gallipoli. Uh, he is buried in uh, in. Arabunu. Uh, and so uh, Wati Baba is his name, Alexander Wat Baba. Uh, and so Wati, he was known to his uh, to his friends. And uh, my great great uncle, who served on the Western Front, had a little uh, a little book with signatures in it, and Wati Baba's signature is in that before he went off to Gallipoli. He was killed. He was in the light horse, but he was killed before the charge at the neck. He was killed by a grenade up on Russell's top. So he's buried there. Um, but also there's some um, the some Muslim men from the Indian Mule Corps are buried there, and their graves face Mecca. Um, there's a number of Australians, interestingly, a number of Australians who served with New Zealand units and New Zealanders who served with Australian units. Um, just quite an interesting mix of, uh, of, of men uh, in this cemetery. There's even uh, a, a grave from the Maltese Labour Corps. You don't, you don't often think of that, but um, Labourer Giuseppe Camilleri of the Maltese Labour Corps is buried here as well. Uh, so Egyptian and Maltese labourers were brought in to assist um, after the August campaign just with construction jobs. And sadly, he was killed just before the evacuation. So yeah, interesting he- spot. I, I went to go and have a look at him uh, last time I was there. I was just interested uh, in his story. And I have a little bit of an interest in, in Maltese serving uh, on the Western Front in the uh, Australian forces. Um, some of you may know the story of the uh, of the Maltese that saved, uh, sailed from Malta uh, to Australia to try and enlist in the Australian forces. And it's because they didn't want to join the Labour Corps. They wanted to fight uh, because effectively Malta was only, its major force was going to be Labour. Um, during the Great War, and they uh, didn't want to serve as labourers. They wanted to serve as infantrymen, so they decided to uh, sail to Australia. Uh, it was a fairly long old journey, and they got uh, darker and darker as they travelled across the sea. And eventually, when they arrived in Australia, they were turned away because of the white-only uh, policy. They said they couldn't enlist because they were too black. So, uh, a very sad little story. And I suppose lots of you are going to, are going to be thinking, I wonder where they went, and I have no idea what happened to them after that. Uh, but these guys, these guys had paid for the trip themselves and uh, and hired a boat so they could uh, they could join the Australian forces and uh, sadly turned away. Just extraordinary! I didn't know that story, Pete. It's always a, it's always a, it's always great learning something new on these podcasts with you. What we're going to do now is we're going to walk out of the cemetery. And there's some steps that lead down onto the beach. This is, of course, Anzac Cove, the famous Anzac Cove. Uh, we, we won't. I don't think we'll actually linger too long. Uh, you know, in the story of Anzac Cove, we everyone knows it inside and out, inside and out. Um, I'll read a quote from Charles Bean from the official history about what Anzac Cove was like. Busy is the answer. It was usually just called The Beach to people. It was it was officially known as Anzac Cove and it was named that during the campaign. But if you ever spoke to a veteran, it was just called The Beach. The, the sector was known as Anzac. In fact, they often referred to the entire Gallipoli campaign as Anzac. So if you see a, a reference to Anzac, they're referring to the fact that they served at Gallipoli. Uh, and usually they just called it The Beach. That was what it was known as. I think it was General Bairdwood that actually suggested that it should be uh, known as Anzac Cove. I think that was uh, his suggestion. But it, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Mo- most soldiers just knew it as the, uh, as the beach. 
again the formality of the officers versus the casualness of the men to the to the commanding general it's uh anzac cove to the uh to the men on it's just the beach i mean see you see you cobra i'm heading down to the beach so this is the description of what it was like but as i said the answer is busy if you ask the question of what anzac cove was like particularly before august when it was the only place that they could come ashore in the whole anzac sector this is what charles bean described it when the struggle of the landing had subsided, the beach on summer days reminded many onlookers of an Australian coastal holiday place. The shoreline itself resembled rather an old-time port, with its crowded barges, often beached to prevent being sunk, a few short piers, piles of biscuit boxes and fodder stacked behind, the smell of rope, of tar, of wet wood, of cheese and other cargo. But in the water, the hundreds of bathers, and on the hillside, the little tracks winding through the low scrub irresistibly recalled the manly of New South Wales, or the Victorian Sorrento, while the sleepy tick-tock of rifles from behind the hills suggested the assiduous practice of batsmen at their nets on some neighbouring cricket field. That's just a fantastic. He did, he quote. did love a good. He did love a good. Uh, a, a good. Uh, a good wander off into prose, didn't he? The old Charles Bean. But it's, what a great description. So this was, as we said before August, this was the main area of operations for the Anzacs coming ashore and uh, and, and waging a war. Just just quite extraordinary. I think what's what's sad now is it's so difficult to get to. I mean, the only real way we can get to it is by using these stairs at the uh, at the back of the cemetery and walking down onto the beach because the I'm sure you were going to talk about it, Matt, but the the building of the of the road uh, and the sea defences because effectively to stop the road being washed out, they had to build sea defences, which effectively was a big wall, has meant that the the whole of the uh, of the curb itself has changed beyond recognition. Really, it's uh, it, it's 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 completely been. Well, some people say destroyed. I'm not quite. A, I'd go quite that far, because in a way, it's been preserved. Because there is there is bad erosion in the area, and if uh, if it had been left without the wall, then slowly but surely the beach and the area would have been eroded anyway. Um, but it has changed it dramatically, and it means that you can no longer walk off the beach as the men would have done. You have to uh, go to the left rail and up through the cemetery. There's no other way of get, getting off the beach easily. Let's talk about the roadworks, because over my career, I've been diplomatic about them and in my book i said you know they were controversial but bugger that we're all friends here we're all listening let's tell it as it was here's the story 2005 just before the 90th anniversary of the landing in the months before anzac day someone from the government and it was the howard government i'm even going to call it out someone from the government the most the most sophisticated work of political ass covering i've ever seen took place after this someone from the howard government went to gallipoli and decided that the road that leads to the commemorative site at North Beach, which obviously goes past Anzac Cove, that that road was not wide enough, was not big enough, was not up to the standard of carrying all the coaches that were going to come for the 90th anniversary. So put in a rather vague request to the Turkish government that they do something about it. The Turks, a couple of things going on. I love the Turkish people, but sometimes they they can be their own worst enemy when it comes to history and preserving their history. No offence to anyone from Turkey, but you know I think you'd admit that occasionally things go a little bit wrong. The Turks wanting to do the right thing basically sent in the bulldozers and they ploughed, basically they removed the entire cliffside over Anzac Cove and what to widen the road. You couldn't widen it in the other direction because it was facing the ocean. So they basically just ploughed away the entire cliffside above Anzac Cove and it must be said did a fairly dodgy job on the whole thing. It was not properly, the, the, they built a brand new road just in time for Anzac Day, which for a couple of days of Anzac Day served the coach as well. But then the whole thing started to go wrong. It just hadn't been properly built and it started to collapse and fall into the sea. And so now we had this disastrous situation where the the road, that the only road leading to the commemorative site was now in danger of collapsing completely. And so then 
you know, again, in consultation with Australians and Turks and everything else, they just had to do major engineering work to try and shore the whole thing up, which is still going on to this day. And the whole, th- the whole thing just made the roadway and the whole surface and the whole slope unstable. And so ever since 2005, its, its determination is to slide into the ocean. <laughs> That's what it wants to do. The road wants to collapse into the ocean. Uh, and so consequently, maybe 10 years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, they built along the entire length of Anzac Cove a six-foot-high rubble seawall to shore up the whole terrible mess, um, permanently altering the entire landscape of Gallipoli forever. The most important part of Gallipoli is now unrecognisable. If any man was teleported back from 1915 to today, he would absolutely he would absolutely not recommend not recognise anything to do with it. So you've got a combination of the massive, ugly, scarred slope above the beach where they bulldozed the wall, where they bulldozed the slope to widen the road, and the terrible, awful seawall. The seawall itself now keeps collapsing and falling into the sea, and it's just just a shambles. So as I said, the, the greatest act of political ass covering that I've ever seen took place where, as the Australian government in 2005 tried to distance itself from the, from the fact that they'd been the ones that asked for the roadworks to be done. Just such a shame and an incredible mismanagement on both sides of the ocean of what, a landscape that should have been preserved. I think part of the issue is that the, the commemorative site has now been the focal point for Anzac Day. Um, because it's this big purpose-built, you know, set up around the corner. And I think that's taken away from the importance of Anzac Cove, which is, of Anzac Cove, which is just a little you know, curved bay now. So I think, uh, I think in some ways our, the, the focus is on the wrong area. Anyway, I will get off my high horse now, but it was a tragedy, and I just can't believe every time I go to Anzac Cove. It's almost not worth going. We, I, I, what we do when we take groups there now is we go to Aribernu Cemetery and then we walk down onto Anzac Cove just so we can say we've been there. But there's no point. There's no point in taking a photo to a then and now photo. It just, it just does not look the same. Um, it's, a, it's a real tragedy. Uh, the saving grace, I suppose, is there's so much of the battlefield which is preserved everywhere. Um, if if that had been it and there'd been nothing else, then it would have been just the biggest disaster you can imagine. Um, and even though it is a disaster that we no longer have that that uh, that feel of the landing, we, we no longer walk in the footsteps of the men in that area. But at least we don't have to go far before we are back in their footsteps again. So so there is that. Uh, thankfully, I, I like your comment, Matt, about the actual commemorative site because it's interesting, isn't it? How many people? In the future, especially when they come whistling through on coaches, will go to the commemorative site and actually then think, right, this is the be all and end all. This is where we, we need to go. We've 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 said we, we've now done it. We've done we've done Anzac. Uh, you know, we can we can move off and carry on. Uh, and that is a little bit uh, reminds me a bit about the Battle of Waterloo site. The Waterloo site, people tend to go to the the visitor centres and uh, to the Butt de Leon, which was uh, built after after the battle, and they don't go onto the battlefield. So, in fact, when they say I visited Waterloo, no, you haven't. You visited the visitor centre and a few of the sites around the visitor centre. You haven't walked on the battlefield at all. You've not been on the battlefield, and so I think that's an interesting aspect of if you get people to go to a certain spot and nowhere else, then they've not really been. They've just been to to a site that commemorates it, but is not the site itself. When we leave uh, Anzac Cove and head back up the stairs, we go to a uh, memorial that uh, is very famous, very well known, uh, which was the words supposedly spoken by Ataturk in 1934. And, and Kamel Ataturk, the father of the Turks, the founder of modern Turkey, uh, he was he became a made man at Gallipoli. He was a, he was a colonel. Uh, in, a, in a Turkish regiment, and he was responsible in many ways for for holding back, particularly in the opening days, holding back the Allies, and, and 
it really made him as a man and led to this great political career where he was the founder of modern Turkey. And there's a there's a large memorial to him with the words that he supposedly wrote. People have said more recently that he probably didn't write those words, but it doesn't matter. These words were attributed to him. He was the leader of the country. He was a politician. And so words written in his name are just as important as words he actually spoke himself. But it's worth repeating here what he said because it's touching and, and sums up the relationship between Turkey and Australia now and New Zealand, of course, and the UK. Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mehmets, so that's the the, uh, the Allies and the Turks, to us where they lie side by side here in this country of ours. You, the mothers who sent their sons away from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. And it's I'm, I'm not quite sure that the men who bled their last out on the slopes of Gallipoli or faced the Turks in savage combat would have felt that sentiment at the time. Um, but it is how the Gallipoli campaign has come. It has forged this really strong bond between Australia and Turkey. It's it's a really quite remarkable thing, Pete, The just the bond between the two countries now. We should be enemies. You can't imagine the French and the Germans getting together to have a good chat about a good chat and a laugh about D-Day. Um, but um, the, the Turks and the Anzacs are, um, you know, we just, we've just formed just forged this very strong bond between the two countries. Uh, yes, I agree. Uh, I've always been a little uh, uncomfortable with uh, with how Ataturk, fantastic politician, I mean, he, he, he basically is uh, the guy that... Uh, that created uh, a modern Turkey, uh, sadly, which is uh, going the other direction at the moment. We won't get into modern politics, but he's a, a fascinating guy and a very, very clever guy. And w- when he spoke those words in 1934, I don't think it matters, as you said, whether he wrote them uh, himself or not. Uh, they are Im- they're important, and they're important in bringing Turkey into uh, into part of of I suppose. Europeanizing Turkey, which is what he wanted. He wanted a secular country that was going to become part of a of a growing Europe, um, and so you know he, he's he's a clever man, and it does lead to this um, uh, in time to this uh, connection between Australia and, and as probably even more so New Zealand and and, and Turkey. But if you read about the the fighting and the treatment of of prisoners during during the war. I think we can we, we have to be careful that we don't over overdo this fact that the, that everybody was buddy buddy when they weren't fighting. You know, the, the, the Turkish treatment of prisoners was not was not good. Um, many prisoners were executed having been been captured. So I do think we just have to be careful when we think about this and 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 don't perceive that everything was nice and you know and they were always mates when they finished fighting they were mates. Well, in some cases they were, in some cases they most definitely were not. Um, it's, I suppose it's the same in, in any war, but I've always just felt just a little uncomfortable that we, I, I don't, I don't like people thinking that it was, it was such a, you know, a relationship with with Turkey at the time and and just after the war. It's developed over a long period of time, and it's a, it's great. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm all for these kind of, uh, these kind of, uh, let uh, live and let live and f- let's forget about what happened in the past. But I think we have to remember that that it wasn't it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience fighting the Turks. I don't think. Pete, it's a great point. We should never. Um, there, there is a desire in modern times when we look back on warfare to to try and find the romanticism and the humanity in it because um, we just can't deal with the ghastliness. That's that's human nature. We don't want to think about 
how keen we were to chop people's heads off and bayonet them and blow them up. And so we we try to find those elements, which did exist. It wasn't the case that it was all brutality. There were moments of humanity there as well. So we, we, tend, to, we tend to latch on to those because it makes us feel better about what went on. I, th- I think it's, in, in many ways, my, it's fascinating. Look, studying warfare is looking in a mirror at the very darkest, you know, the darkest deeds that humans can ever undertake. And it scares us. We don't like thinking that I could have been the same. I could have been that young bloke who one minute was working in a bookshop in Glebe in Sydney and then the next minute I was bayoneting a Turk on the beaches of Gallipoli. So we don't like it. So we do look for those moments of humanity to try and make it all make sense and to try and, and, and understand. I think the other important thing that I always say to people, people always say, isn't it very gracious of the Turks to let us come and commemorate and, you know, and, and we invaded their country. You know, the whole concept of it was invasion of Turkey is well overblown. It was absolutely not an invasion of Turkey. It was a, a quite a strategic move to capture a very strategic plot of land. It was not an invade, a wholesale invasion of Turkey um, in the way that we think of an invasion like the, the Nazis invading France. Um, but people say, oh, isn't it gracious of the Turks they let us come? And there's a really important thing to remember here. The Turks absolutely won the battle, but they lost the war. And Ataturk said there had never been a country more defeated than, than the Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War. We absolutely smashed them in the war. And to the victors go the spoils. So we were able to come back and 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 occupy the country that we had not succeeded in, in, in overcoming during the war. So we should always remember that. No, again, nothing away from Turkey, but um, we should remember that, that yes, we lost the, the campaign, but we absolutely won the war. And we were then able to, um, you know, to decide how uh, how Gallipoli should be remembered from that point going forward. So it's a joint effort, is what I would say. It's a joint effort between all of the countries who were involved to remember. And the Turks are very, very good at remembering what went on there. And for, and for you know, as you said, it's changing slightly now, but in general have been great at just remembering and commemorating. And, and it's a, it's a shared experience. Peter, I think what we will do is. We've already been going for an over an hour. I think we should come back to this. I think we should... We Pete and I discussed whether we would do this in two parts because we knew it was going to be big, and I think we absolutely should do that. So let's do the last site, which will be Aribonu, the peninsula itself, the headland itself, and then we'll come back next week to finish our walk because there's more... I, I don't want to rush it and there's more to say. So we'll finish the walk this week, halfway along the, the walk of the landing beaches by scrambling up Aribonu, which is the headland which overlooks Anzac Cove at the northern end. And the reason it's important is this was where the first Anzacs scrambled up. The Aussies that came ashore, they they, land, they hit the beach right in front of what is now the cemetery. They went across the land that is now the cemetery and then they scrambled up this this low headland called Aribunu. And um, you can do it yourself. You can, not the same way they did because you can't get up from the beach, but you can walk back up from the cemetery to the road and you can scramble up the side. And I did it the first time I was there. We did it, Pete, in 2013. Yeah. That's yeah. well I've worth actually, doing. I've written in my notes, worth a scramble. <laughs> <laughs> worth a scramble. It is a bit of a scramble, and you have to do it the same way the Anzacs did. You have to you have to grab onto tufts of, of scrub and, and haul yourself up, but it's well worth doing. When you get to the top, there is a trench there, which was originally a Turkish trench, um, but also you would have to say probably enhanced during the campaign, particularly during the evacuation, because this whole area, they knew um, if, uh, if there was a Turkish breakthrough during the evacuation, this whole area was going to be the, the last stand on the, on the peninsula, effectively. And so, um, yeah, so some of these, these trenches would have been built by the Turks, but probably improved by the, by the Anzacs. But um, let's, um, let's hear uh, Major Aubrey Darnell describe the charge up Aribunu. So it's probably a fitting spot to end. Uh, on the day of the landing, here's what he experienced. In your footsteps as you scramble up this slope. A brief pause on the beach to fix bayonets, much swearing and cheering, and we charged up a hill so steep in places we could only just scramble up. No firing, all bayonet work. Now, this is interesting what he says. Clean over a machine gun we went. 
Men dropped all around me. It was mad, wild, thrilling. Not till I was near the top of the hill did I realise that in the excitement, I hadn't even drawn my revolver. Fascinating one. So he said they saw a machine gun. They claimed they saw a machine gun. But the we know that there were not machine guns there. It's definitively been proven now there were not machine guns there for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we've now read the Turkish accounts. I haven't personally, but historians much more adept than me have read the Turkish accounts and have read the returns from the units that were involved and none of them were equipped with machine guns. But most importantly, the logic test. This is the one that always crosses me. They say, clean over a machine gun we meant. We went. That's what he says. So if that was the case, what would have happened? That gun would have been captured. That machine gun would have been captured. It would have been marked up, labelled, and and sent back as a as a as a as a trophy, as a war trophy. As a they would have sent it back to to investigate, to examine, to pull apart, to find out how the Turks were armed. It would have been listed as something that was captured, and not a single machine gun was listed as being captured from the Turks for the opening weeks of the campaign. So that says to me pretty definitively that they um there were no machine guns there at Anzac Cove. You could imagine, though, can't you, how easy it was to believe that? Because um, I'm fairly certain that this guy would not actually, you know, outright lie. Um, there were machine guns firing, but of course they were our machine guns firing from the lighters, so you could hear machine guns firing. And the men at that time wouldn't be really used to different machine gun noises, so they wouldn't know. They could just hear machine guns. And you can imagine in, in the half light as he's scrambling up that bank and he sees two two Turks, let's say, slumped over something, you know, uh, and he and he just bounds over them. Then he would just, in his mind, I've just cleared a machine gun. I've just gone over the top of a machine gun. So I think it's very easy to imagine how the men themselves, um, uh, and certainly as these stories then in, it went on and on with more and more people talking about machine guns. Oh well, that must have been a machine gun. I, I climbed over a machine gun as I was uh, advancing. So yeah. Plus, that was in his diary, which he may have written two weeks after the landing, and he would have seen it. And he would have seen an awful lot of machine guns. They, 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 they saw lots of machine guns on the first day. You know, within hours of the landing, they were coming under very heavy machine gun fire as Turkish reinforcements came up. So he would have been used to a lot of machine guns firing at him. Um, you know, if he'd written that a week or two after the landing. So yeah, it's 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 understandable. And of course, even just rapid fire, 150 men firing their rifles at the same time, uh, rapid fire of rifles is going to give that impression. But um. It's probably a good spot to finish this opening cha- uh, chapter of the landing because we're standing in the Turkish trenches overlooking Anzac Cove in the spot where the very first Turks would have seen that armada of small boats coming in. A good spot to uh, to pause and just think about that landing and, and what went on from that point. It would have been a pretty scary, scary notion to turn to your mate and say, "Is what's that coming in? <laughs> I have to say, you need to pause there because normally when you when you've got when you've got up to the top, you, you're you're very out of breath. It's a steep old climb uh, and difficult. And uh, if you had a rifle in one hand as well as you were climbing and uh, your equipment on, then yeah, even even uh, even more difficult. But it is a great place to stop and look back out into the uh, out to the sea and imagine uh, what the Turks would have seen in that half light as they saw the boats ap- uh, approaching uh, the beach. Um, yeah, and uh, so saying, I'd quite like to uh, walk back down again and go for a swim now, I think. <laughs> if you're there in August, which a lot of people are, July or August, that's uh, that's certainly on the cards. When I was a younger man, I um, a couple of times when I was at Gallipoli, I did exactly what the Anzacs did. And I also went up the side of Pluggy's Plateau from Araburnu, which we'll get to later on. That's the next big slope, and that's three or four times higher than Araburnu. So you've got to be, I wouldn't do that these days, but um, you've got to be pretty keen to do that one. But I did that uh, in my first couple of visits as well. So it's a wonderful spot. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this uh, first half of our walk along the the landing beaches. And please join us next week when we continue the walk um, further along Anzac Cove, up into Shrapnel Valley, up past Brighton Beach, and really walking in the footsteps of the Anzacs in those opening days of the campaign. Pete, thank you so much for joining me as always. And uh, I look forward to continuing the journey next week. Pleasure. Can't wait for next week and carry, uh, carry on the story. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.